Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles this morning to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. Last week we began our study in the book of Jonah. and We covered the most famous part of the book, the part about Jonah being swallowed by the big fish. I pointed out that many Christians think the story of Jonah is a parable. But there are good reasons to believe that the story of the, of the book is historical and actually happened. In chapter 2, Jonah made a vow to the Lord. I speculated that Jonah vowed that if God would save him from the huge fish, Jonah would go to Nineveh. The chapter ended with the fish vomiting Jonah out on dry land, and that's where we pick up the story this morning. But first, let's pray. Lord, this is such a familiar story, a children's story. Open our eyes and help us see things we've never noticed before. And convict us if we need convicting. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 say, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I gave you. It's almost as though God were saying, Okay, Jonah, let's try this again, shall we? Go preach in Nineveh like I told you. If Jonah had just obeyed God in the first place, he could have saved himself a lot of trouble and a terrifying lesson. But Jonah learned his lesson the hard way. So this time, verses 3 and 4 talk about how Jonah obeyed God and went to Nineveh, preaching, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, I'm sure that was a message Jonah was happy to preach. After all, Nineveh was a feared enemy of the Jews. So if Jonah had to be in Nineveh anyway, he might as well be preaching a message he enjoyed preaching. He wanted Nineveh to be overthrown and destroyed. Unfortunately for Jonah, another miracle then happened, even greater than the big fish. Verses 5 to 9 tell about it. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. Let the people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent with compassion and turn from his fierce anger so we will not perish. All this stuff about sitting in dust wearing sackcloth, probably something like a burlap sack, and fasting were traditional ways of showing mourning or repentance. But this passage raises two significant questions. First, how can we seriously believe that everyone in a huge and evil city like Nineveh just suddenly repented because a Jewish prophet came to them? I mean, wouldn't this be like a sudden mass conversion of the entire city of San Francisco or Las Vegas? That seems pretty unlikely, to say the least. Not only that, but there is no record in history of a mass conversion to God in Nineveh. 
In fact, the next generation of Ninevites actually conquered and deported the northern kingdom of Israel. The unbelievability of this story is one reason why many people believe the whole story of Jonah is a parable. There are, however, several answers to these objections. First, any nation is always just one generation from turning away from God. So even if all the Ninevites did convert, that doesn't mean their children and their next king would follow God. For example, the history of Judah is filled with evil kings who came right after godly kings. So the idea that the next generation of Nineveh would turn from God and invade Israel is not nearly as far-fetched as it might seem. Second, if a mass conversion did take place in Nineveh, we should not be surprised that it would leave no historical record. Ancient kings simply wiped out or rewrote history that didn't fit the narrative they wanted to promote. Sound familiar? And third, when verse 5 says, the Ninevites believed God, I don't think that necessarily means every single man, woman, and child in Nineveh sincerely repented of their sin and converted to the God of Israel. I think it just means they believed Jonah's message that God may destroy their city in 40 days. So the king and nobles of Nineveh took Jonah's message seriously and decreed that the people show outward cultural signs of repentance and give up their evil ways and violence. On the other hand, there was a widespread conversion from idolatry to the worship of God in Judah during the reign of Josiah. So who knows, there might have been some kind of great awakening in Nineveh too. Either way, their change in behavior was enough for God not to destroy the city. A second major question is, why would the king of Nineveh even listen to a Jewish prophet, much less take him seriously? I mean, if, if a Muslim prophet came from Iran and came to America and said that Allah would destroy America in 40 days, certainly no one here would take him seriously. Why would the king of Nineveh listen to Jonah? I would suggest that it was because of Elisha. The ministry of Elisha and Jonah overlapped slightly, both ministering during the reign of Joash, king of Judah. And Elisha was known internationally as a powerful prophet of God. So, for example, in 2 Kings chapter 3, Elisha prophesied that the kings of Judah, Samaria, and Edom would defeat the nation of Moab. And they did. Elisha was not only known in Moab, but also in Edom. In 2 Kings chapter 6, Elisha was telling Samaria's king about Syria's top secret military plans. So Syria's king sent an army to capture Elisha. God sent an army of angels to strike the Syrian army with blindness and protect Elisha. In chapter 7, the Syrians laid siege to the Israelite city of Samaria. And just when everything looked hopeless, Elisha prophesied Syria's defeat. And his prophecy came true. In chapter 8, Elisha then prophesied that the king of Syria would recover from an illness, but would die anyway. And sure enough, he recovered, but then was assassinated. And since Syria and Assyria were neighboring countries, I'm quite sure the Assyrian king of Nineveh had heard about the greatness of this Jewish prophet Elisha. 
So when another Jewish prophet, Jonah, came to Nineveh, the king of Nineveh took his message very seriously and ordered the people of Nineveh to stop their evil and violence in a desperate hope that God of Israel would change his mind. My point in all this is that there are sometimes things in the Bible that seem unlikely or impossible, like the king of Nineveh paying any attention to Jonah. But when you know the background, suddenly it all makes sense. Anyway, according to verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. The NIV says God relented, but the King James says God repented of the evil he said he would do unto them. The New Living Translation says God changed his mind. Regardless of how this word is translated, the problem is that God said he would destroy Nineveh in 40 days, and he didn't do it. So the question is, why didn't God destroy Nineveh like he said he would? How can the God, how can God, who even knows the future, change his mind or repent? Some scholars get into a big theological and philosophical discussion about sovereignty and free will and about whether God can ever really change his mind. But I think they missed the point in this passage. Jonah is not a book of philosophy. It's much more practical than that. I think the context of the entire book of Jonah shows that God's warning about the destruction of Nineveh was never absolute. Jonah understood from the very beginning that God's warning of Nineveh's destruction was only if they refused to repent. And we know that because from the very beginning of the book, Jonah fled from God because he knew that if Nineveh repented, God would not destroy them. Jonah knew all along that the warning of destruction was conditional. So Nineveh as a whole turned from their evil and violence. That was exactly what Jonah had feared. This was the main reason he had run away from Nineveh in the first place. He knew God was gracious, merciful, and patient. He did not want Nineveh to be spared. If Franklin Graham were to conduct a ministry in Gaza, there would be some people who would prefer Hamas to be killed rather than saved. And that was Jonah's attitude toward Nineveh. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, But to Jonah this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. After all, the people of Nineveh were evil, savage idolaters. They were enemies of God and of Israel. Shouldn't they face God's righteous judgment and be destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah? The idea that God would spare them just seemed wrong to Jonah. So in verses 2 and 3, he prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was at home? That was what I for tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. Last week, I speculated that Nineveh's savagery may have been one reason Jonah set sail for Tarshish. But now we find out that the main reason Jonah fled was because he knew that God's threat to destroy Nineveh was only if they did not repent. And Jonah knew that since God was sending him, there was a good chance that God would save Nineveh from, destru from destruction. And Jonah didn't want that. 
In fact, Jonah's hatred of the Ninevites was so great that their salvation made him want to die. Verse 4, But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? The text doesn't tell us how Jonah responded, but the context is pretty clear that he probably thought, darn right, I have a right to be angry. In fact, Jonah apparently hoped he had convinced God to continue with plan A and destroy the city. So in verse 5, Jonah had gone out and sat down in a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. I think Jonah hoped that his argument had convinced God to destroy Nineveh after all. And if so, Jonah wanted a front and row seat to watch its destruction. In the meantime, the temperature can get pretty hot in that part of the world, up to 110 degrees or more, and the heat was getting to Jonah. So in verses 6 to 9, Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind. The sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. Then verses 10 and 11 close with the main point of the whole book. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Sounds like God was concerned for the animals too, doesn't it? Scholars argue about the meaning of people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, because arguing is what scholars do. Some scholars say that this refers to little children who are too young to know right from left. Others say it refers to adults who are too dumb to know right from left. But God is showing compassion on Nineveh because they had just repented. So I don't think he was now insulting them for their stupidity. I think this refers to children. The point being that there were 120,000 in adults in Nineveh plus children. In other words, there could easily have been over 300,000 people in Nineveh. And in the ancient world, that was an enormous city. So God says, should I not have concern for that great city? The implication is, Jonah, shame on you. You are more concerned about that dumb plant and your comfort than you are about all those thousands and thousands of souls. And I think that is one of the main messages in the book of Jonah. It is the same message God had given to Abraham, Isaiah, Jonah, Jesus, and Paul, that God has compassion and love for all nations and ethnic groups, not just Jews. The application is for us is to follow Jesus' command to make disciples of all nations. And the question is, are we, like Jonah, more concerned for our own comfort than we are about lost souls? 
A related lesson, lesson in chapter 4 is that God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, even toward his enemies like Nineveh. God expects us to be abounding in love toward our enemies too. In Luke 6.27, Jesus specifically said to love your enemies. Now, I personally don't think Jesus necessarily meant that we must have warm, fuzzy feelings toward our enemies. In fact, in Luke 6, 27 and 28, Jesus continued by explaining what he meant. Jesus said, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. This kind of love is not about feelings, it's about actions. Do good, bless, pray for. These are action words. It's about choosing to return evil with good. Blessing is about choosing to bless or say something good about those who curse us and praying for those who mistreat us. More specifically, <clears throat> we should examine ourselves to see if there are any people we despise so much that we would almost rather see God judge them than save them. Maybe certain politicians or maybe transgender or abortion advocates. How about drug dealers? Hamas terrorists or human traffickers. We have to hate the sin, of course, but if we want to be on God's side, we better not hate the sinner. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Another New Testament observation I want to make is in Matthew 12, 38 to 42, where Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus for a sign and Jesus answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. When we interpret the Bible, we have to interpret it in light of the culture of their time and place and not by the culture of our time and place. If we didn't do that, the meaning of the Bible would be constantly changing depending on what century people lived in and what country or culture or ethnic group they belonged to. In the culture of Jesus' time, three days and three nights did not necessarily mean three 24-hour periods. It was a figure of speech for any part of three days. For example, if I left on a trip on a Friday afternoon and came back in time for church on Sunday morning, in ancient Jewish culture, they would say I was gone for three days and three nights, Friday, Saturday and Sunday. Even though by our thinking, I would only be gone two nights, two partial days, and one full day. So in other words, Jonah may have only been in the whale two days, two nights, two partial days, and one full day. Similarly, Jesus was executed on Friday afternoon, which we call Good Friday, and was resurrected on Sunday morning. We would say that was two nights, two partial days, and one full day. They would simplify things and just say Friday, Saturday, and Sunday was three days and three nights. It's a figure of speech. 
The important thing, however, is that by comparing himself to Jonah, Jesus was predicting his own death and resurrection. Just as Jonah came out of the fish on the third day, Jesus would come out of the earth on the third day. And that is what we celebrate on Easter in about five weeks. Easter is about the love of God poured out on the cross for us. And God's love is another lesson in the book of Jonah. Chapter 4, verse 2 says, God is a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. In Ezekiel 3.11, God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. God warned Nineveh of destruction precisely because of his love and so he could have mercy on them when they repented. God does not delight in punishing people or allowing them to go to hell. In fact, in Romans 2, Paul says that God's kindness toward you is intended to lead you to repentance. Don't take God's grace, mercy, and kindness for granted. If you've never repented of your sin and committed your heart and life to Christ in faith, don't keep putting it off. You never know when this day will be your last. Let's pray. Lord, if there is anyone here this morning who has never repented of their sin and committed their heart and life to you in faith, we pray that you would work in their heart, convict them of their sin, and draw them to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.